Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the Christmas Eve, that's December 24, 2019, edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Ani Zonnefeld, founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values, returns to the show for a review of the year, as well as some thoughts on how secular Muslims have fun about this time of the year. In the second segment, artist Tom Kiefer will take up his very special exhibition of photographs at the Skirball Center, El Sueño Americano, The American Dream, on exhibit at the Skirball Center in L.A., now through March 8th. We'll return after a very short break. we got lots to do. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Ani Zonnefeld. She is the founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values, returning to the show for a review, as I said, of the year. Muslims for Progressive Values is a faith-based, grassroots, international human rights organization embodying the traditional Quranic values and advocating for social justice and equality for all in this very 21st century of ours. Ani's presided over Muslims for Progressive Values expansion, include chapters and affiliates in 12. I think she may have added some more countries. She's organized <laughs> numerous interfaith arts and music festivals, participated in many interfaith dialogues, and is a strong supporter of human rights and freedom of expression. She's contributed to many forwards, numerous anthologies, appeared on many, many, many media platforms, and she keeps coming back. She, whenever I ask her, she's on. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome back to Ask a Leader on his own of Oh, thank you, Claudia. Appreciate this. Well, I appreciate this because you do really such really amazing work. I'd like to start with the beginning of the year. Take the go to the present. Um, or you can go backward if you want. It's a kind. It's dangerous to be a Muslim in the world, and this puts you. You're sort of dealing with a multi-front kind of agenda with shoring up fellow Muslims' civil rights, but pushing back where the more the Sharia observing Muslims are oppressing their own. So. You've got yeah. many fronts this year to deal with. Yeah, well, that's been the front, the line that we've been walking, and I've been walking for more than 12 years. This year in November, Muslims for Progressive Values celebrated our 12th year uh, in existence, and which makes us the oldest progressive Muslim organization in the United States and the largest, and we are in eight cities now, and we have grown. <laughs> we have continued to grow, um, and our influence is catching on. We're in probably, like, we are in 17 countries, and by that, these are uh, grassroots organizations in various countries that have adopted our way of advocating for human rights in the context of Islam, creating inclusive communities, pushing back against the anti-Islam sentiment with uh, an inclusive universal worldview of Islam. So it pushes back against both the 
the conservative and intolerant interpretation of religion and those that are intolerant of Muslims because of that intolerant, perceived intolerant interpretation of Islam as being the truth, right? So it's a tight box. But yes. I'm happy to report, uh, always I'm happy to report that it is moving in our direction, and you see this movement throughout in the Middle East, you see this in the statistics as well, here in the United States as well in the Muslim world, particularly in the Middle East, where people are so done with this intolerant interpretation of Islam, and we can... Well, drill down deeper if you want, but I'll leave it at that. For well, now. we will. I just want to, since you post me on how many more affiliated countries, so who is new to the organization? And talk a little bit about how they join the charter. How What's that process look like? Yeah, so there's been so many um, countries, uh, Latin American countries, for oh. example, Argentina, Brazil, Chile uh, that have come on board and uh, France, many more cities have come on board and so has there been in Germany and Switzerland is coming on board next year. So the movement has really taken off in, in that it is really grassroots and, the, and, and that's the most beautiful part of it and it's also women-led largely. Um, oh. so, the, so, so what has happened is that I've really shied away from, okay, join the MPV brand, Muslims for Progressive brand, because I'm not really interested in, because once they ad- adopt MPV brand, that means that I have to administer and be the manager, and I'm not interested in that. So what we've done, actually, is we've spearheaded the founding of an umbrella, the first ever Muslim human rights organization called Alliance of Inclusive Muslims, and it's founded in Tunisia. And what I did was brought in all these organizations that wanted to join in on the MPV brand and said, no, 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 let's start this new umbrella organization where we are all equal and advocate for the same, pretty much the same values, human rights for all, freedom of expression, and most importantly now, freedom of religion and belief. And this is actually really key, and this has become the divisive issue in, in the world, whether it be in the West or in the Muslim world. And in America, it is interpreted as the Religious Freedom Reformation Act, RIFRA. And the Christian right has been using Religious Freedom Reformation Act to justify discrimination in the name of religion. And we've seen this consistently, and it's been peaking with Trump in office, how they've used RIFRA to justify um, their discrimination on LGBT rights, and on women's reproductive rights. There is an article, basically, where Trump has allowed for those in the medical profession to discriminate against those who they feel don't serve their uh, religious, uh, that, that contradicts their religious rights. So, for example, if you're a doctor and you have a trans patient, you have the right to reject this patient because it apparently contradicts your particular religious view. Whether you're Muslim or Christian, it doesn't matter. This is really appalling. So this is the way religious freedom has been used in in the United States. And in the Muslim world, that's been, uh, you know, issue of blasphemy and apostasy. I mean, it's, it's gone amok. So this is what we're really focused on moving forward. So that makes it very difficult for you to slice then how to the, with the reefer, the way it's been interpreted, that's a that is a very very difficult 
way to push, that's very difficult to push back on, that it's a narrow interpretation of a broad freedom. Um, no, it's, it's not that difficult in, in the context of America where you have, you do have discriminatory laws in place. So it can be argued. So for example, Article 7 is going to be argued and uh, reviewed at, at the Supreme Court. And we're probably going to hear the Supreme Court decision on that in March. And this is in regards to trans rights. Okay. Um, in the United States, RIFRA was actually used on an FGM case by a Muslim community. Feminal Muslim genital community. mutilation, just so that people know the yes. shorthand. Oh, okay. yeah, female genital mutilation and cutting, FGMC. And they, basically, this conservative Muslim community is, was trying to argue for their religious right using RIFRA to justify FGM in America, in Detroit. And this was a case that we obviously argued. Uh, you know, wrote to the prosecutor and said, this has nothing to do with religion. This is absolutely a cultural belief and practice. And so, but unfortunately, the outcome of that is that the federal judge threw the case out as being unconstitutional. So after 20 years, we now in America have, do not have a ban, a law banning FGMC in place, which is appalling. And wow, um, two of the girls that were cut in Detroit actually came from Ilhan Omar's district. Okay, wow. Yes. Okay. We'll get, so we're going to open that all the way up, Ani, but I, but I want to talk to the sort of the legalistic part here. So that for people to really to understand that there was a ban, but in, in the name of religious freedom, a tribal cultural uh, rite of passage was interpreted as a religious uh, right ritual that was that the ban was lifted and this public health issue personal health issue is now in place not only public health it's child abuse it's torture it is described as torture so now we have uh, uh, for uh, child abuse and torture it's appalling in the united states in the 21st century but Ani, this isn't the last act, though. What's what is the uh, the next your next move on this? So the next move is uh, we uh, as part of an umbrella organization called U.S. to End FGM. We we work collectively in in legislatively at the federal level, and so I'm really appealing to your listeners, to everyone. Every time I speak, I always say this: that whoever your candidate is, that you're you're choosing to vote for in this election season, ask this question: What is your position? What is your candidate's position? Female genital mutilation and cutting. What is your candidate's position on marriage? Should it be 16? Should it be 18 because we don't have a federal age on marriage as well and that's another whole issue that's happening in the United States and this is the time to ask those hard questions because it's not on the radar of our legislators it's not on the radar of any of the candidates and it should be and so we are really um, using this election season to raise that bar, raise that issue, raise the visibility of this issue, and legislatively to work on the federal level to reinstate or to redraft, which is going to be hell, given the divisiveness of um, D.C., but it shouldn't be on such an issue as torture and child torture in particular. Well, as far as uh, what's going on in Orange County, the 
operatives with the Democratic Central Committee and the the Center for the Study of Domestic Violence at the UCI Law School have made the marriage age, the, what do we call it, the floor? <laughs> the, the, yeah. the age at which it can take place, that they've made that a movement item in Orange County and appealing to state leadership to recognize that. And California's, what's the age now, Ani? For it's, a, it's 16, 16 with parental consent. Right. It's, we were not able to change that to 18. We failed to do that, along with other organizations, obviously. Um, we, we failed to do that. And we have a Democratic-led government in place. It's so pathetic. So, so there's some work to be done. Now, I guess this is a good time then to talk about when Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was in the Southland in last July, and she spoke both in L.A. and in Orange County. I heard her down here. She spoke, though, at a forum you attended in San Fernando Valley, I believe, and you... No, 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 I did not attend. I don't, I don't attend her events. Okay, but you you were at a different event then. Was it, um, uh, it that was in D.C. That was a D.C. venue. What 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 month was that? That was in end of July in Washington D.C. It was a conference that Muslims for Progressive Values was actually a co-sponsor of, and it was called the Muslim Caucus, and it was designed to uh, educate. Uh, potential candidates, um, Muslim candidates, of issues that they need to address, whether it's within and outside, without the Muslim community. So I was asked to speak on RIFRA and Religious Freedom Reformation Act, and uh, she attended the conference, and that's when I asked a "Quote unquote," the wrong question. <laughs> well, let's. I don't have it queued up. I can't play exactly what happened. But to the the point of the forum, you stand up. You are. You do not ever wear a scarf. I, but it is. It's. You said it's a Muslim caucus, so everybody identifies as a a Muslim. Correct in that forum. Yes, and not only that, I always introduce myself as the founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values because I quote-unquote, don't look Muslim, and I don't care to, to, to dress accordingly, you know, to, to identify myself as such. I'm, I'm an, an individual. But I, because of that, I always introduce myself. So everybody it knows. It frames so you. Everybody knows, yes. And it was a two-part question. And the media conveniently did not include my name in the video. It was painted as if I was a right-winger, a right trope, again, a planned at a press conference asking the wrong question, pushing this narrative of uh, trying to push Ilhan into a particular corner, when that was not what it was all about. It was about me asking her, Rashida Tab, who's not there. No, she was not. But asking, there were men asking there. Ilhan to be uh, an ally with us in raising the issue of FGM, and particularly when two of the, cons- uh, of the child that was cut was from her constituents. And she has not made any statement on this issue. So I was basically asking her to be an ally, but instead I got a major slap down from her. And unfortunately, the media um, also played the role, uh, a really awful role, of painting me as if I was a right-wing trope, not mentioning who I was. And fortunately, as it became very visible, 
many of those who recognized who I was started posting, this is not a right-wing trope. Hang on a second. This is actually Aniza Novella, human rights defender. She's been doing this work for a long time, asking her about FGM. And at that point, then some of the media started to include my name, and some of the, a few media actually came to me to ask for my perspective. And what was really most despicable is that the left media intentionally did that because they knew who I was, because they were in the room. All the media, The Guardian, The Independents, uh, CNN, Huffington Post, they were all in the room. And so they could have easily asked, you know, what is, how did you ra- react to that, to Elhan Omar's reaction? But that's not what they did. They are not interested in the issue. All they are interested in is dividing and conquer. All they're interested in is firing up their base, whoever that base is. And for that three weeks, four weeks, all I saw was the left wing playing it up and the right wing using it to playing it up. That's all. And nobody was discussing the issue. And I I had to keep addressing the issue. This is not about Ilhan. This is not about me. This is about the issue of child, you know, FGM, child torture. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Ani Zonefeld, founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values. It's growing growing by the week and the month, I must say. We're talking about her forum. She attended a Muslim caucus in D.C. this last, what you said was last July? It was after she was here. You were there. So I want to say, though, my impression was that she, I mean, she's a tough cookie. It didn't seem like she understood the exercise that she was talking past you to some other people that if a tough cookie can't handle a nuanced, tough dialogue, how tough is she? She was speaking to her funders, and her funder was were in the room, in the back of the room. Yeah, it felt and like they, that. Past, yeah. She was talking they, past you. Yeah. yeah, and she had to smirk, and, um, and it was really, for me, it said a lot about her than it said about me, so unfortunately, um, for her, I think it was a missed opportunity to really address the issue because this is an issue that we as Muslims need to address. But as Muslims, we can actually take the lead on this and to protect all children from, from this taking place because it's not just a Muslim issue. No, it's, it's also not. Christians and other uh, cultures that also practice FGM. So, you know, we can take the lead. And this is one way of actually pushing back against the anti-Islam and Islamophobic sentiment in the United States. No, this is an issue that we are going to fight, not just for, for the girls in our community, but for everyone. It's, you know, it's stupid. You know, the reaction was just so stupid and selfish. That's my thoughts on that. But the good news... What's the good you know, news? The good news is this. The, the U.S. umbrella to NFGM, we have always struggled with the media. Why is the media not covering this issue? It's been just such a challenge. And because of this interaction with Ilhan Omar, MPV, my name, and FGM was mentioned 302 million times wow. in just four weeks. Wow. Yes. That's And so that's striking. the good news. Okay. And that now people have... Oh, it's an issue in the U.S. because nobody knew it was an issue. And when did the ban cease to exist on female genital mutilation? When did that actually come to a halt with that the decision to overturn in the name of religious freedom? 
December 2018. Okay, so it's been one year and, now. And yeah, so there are one year and then in January the federal prosecutors decided not to challenge the decision. And that was the end of that case. Okay. So I'm all about finding out when there's a foot that need, a shoe needs to drop. It's not a last act as I was calling it earlier. So have you new alliances coalescing with you to return this now to codify a, diff- a ban in maybe a different way. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that question. So as a result of that, there has been um, a burgeoning uh, coalition of organization here in Los Angeles called the Los Angeles FGM Task Force. Wow. And um, so I've been talking to them for some months now, and um, I think it was in August or September we officially launched the Los Angeles FGM Task Force. And it's a group of organizations that's mostly women-led and and also immigrants um, cases, immigrant organizations, because uh, it is happening primarily in immigrant communities. And so therefore, it makes it a little bit more challenging to address this issue, given the anti-immigrant climate that we do have, right? Right. So, it's fighting both sides, right? Yeah, fine. Immigrant is an issue, but you know we also have to address this issue within the immigrant community. It's not trying to paint them in a negative light. You know, it's it's just this whole paradigm that we have to deal with. So this is this is what we've you know to move this agenda forward, and we have to to keep doing it until it becomes a law. But it's also an educational process that we also have to educate. We have to work with the medical uh, practitioners. Um, this is one aspect. We have to work with the educational system, the LAUSDs, you know, the whole spectrum um, where children are included, where the environment is, um, you know, addresses children or is in a children, child environment. So LAUSD is one entity that we have to start working with, and obviously that's a very huge challenge. So, um, Ani, quite yeah. earnestly, does Planned Parenthood have a role here? Yes, they, 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 they can, actually. That's a good idea. So. Well, it, it just occurred to me, and I, I'm going to be having them on when we're leading up to the, the annual now, Women's March. Mm-hmm. I'll talk to the local organizers, and I'm, I'm thinking of that constituency, and I'm thinking of lots of young women are so activated now. They're mobilizing. There's many fronts, though. They're sort of <laughs> they're spread pretty thin, but I, I would wonder if while they're on it with climate change and immigration, because this is, this is an immigration issue, really, yeah. and other things, if this is something that coalescing with that brand new cohort that's joining the political activism, if they're not a really fresh face to put on the advocacy for banning the feminine yeah, yeah, yeah. gentleman. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good idea. And there's also, you know, the issue and, and connecting that to religious freedom. It, yes. You know, it's important that I want to talk a little bit about this issue of blasphemy and apostasy and what we happening. must talk about that. And that'll be yeah. the, the, the last of the topics that we get to cover today. Absolutely. Yeah. It's huge. It's blowing up all over in India. And uh, I don't know if you want to talk about how you want to react to the the protests where there's a lot of solidarity progressives yeah. have with a lot of people there and that's and yeah. it's hard yeah it's in, yeah the issue it's uh, let me put it this way india and china and how they've interned more than 1 million 
Uyghurs who are ethnically Turkish, uh, of Turk uh, heritage, and so they are on the eastern side of China, and there's more than one million Uyghurs in jail in camps in what they call re-education. And the U.S. government has raised this issue quite prominently in various forums, international forums, which I've attended, but it's really quite appalling. And we've obviously, you know, raised this issue um, with Uyghurs here in, in the U.S., but this issue of religious freedom and how it's being used by governments uh, to silence and to silence diversity, to silence dissent. In Pakistan, this educator, a young guy by the name of Junaid Hafiz, you know, a list of long people being accused of apostasy and blasphemy and being sentenced to death by the Sharia court. And so this whole issue of freedom of religion and belief, which is a United Nations term uh, for in promoting this freedom uh, to believe or not, the individual right and how you want to believe or not, this has become such a divisive issue globally here in, in, in the West and in the Muslim uh, countries. And um, so what we're doing is we are actually organizing the first ever conference, um, which is going to be in Kenya in March next year, and we're bringing together for freedom of religion and belief, uh, educators, um, religious leaders, and uh, rights advocates uh, from faith-based and civil societies of Muslim heritage only, because this has never happened for us to uh, wow. to to convene to strategize. Like, how do we address this issue of apostasy and blasphemy, and how it's being used and abused by not just governments but also by uh, vigilantes? You know, that just kill you. Because you, as a lawyer, you're defending someone to believe or not, or someone's right to express themselves on social media and elsewhere. It's just appalling. So this has never been done before. So, you know, I've been working on this issue for more than 10 years, and so much against the tide. <laughs> okay. But I'm happy to say that, you know, as a result of us building our MPV's work on human rights, which includes religious freedom, we have this reputation of being at the forefront of this issue, and so we're bringing together all the member organizations of Alliance of Inclusive Muslims, AIM, and others, uh, those from the Arab League, from the African Union, from the United Nations, and others, to really discuss this issue and to strategize on how to to address this and to combat this at the grassroots level as well as at the policy level. When is this ha- taking place in Kenya? We've got the primary on March 3rd, and I'm just, I'm keeping, I'm so possessive of everybody getting involved locally on the California state primary, but when will this forum convene in Kenya? It would be March 25th, 26th. Okay, so we'll talk about that. Let's talk about that. We'll do an update after you're finished with that form. And I want to share with listeners what, because we can't all get to Kenya. And we're, and, and, yes. and if you are on <laughs> a roll you, now yes. with 302 million mentions, then this gives you a platform that gives this alternative sort of progressive home for Muslims and non-Muslims that are progressive yes. that want to advance freedom in the yeah. broadest interpretation 
possible. Yes, and there's there's something really good that's happening in Iowa in regards to American politics. It's called the Vote Common Good uh, Summit. Yes. And Vote Common Good is Christian-led, and they're progressive, and it's basically, you know, we have to vote for the common good of all American citizens, and it's coming from a progressive Christian interpretation, and it's really beautiful. And I'm hoping that the candidates will also show up. They have all been invited. And um, I was also uh, reached out to by Pete Buttigieg's um, faith outreach person in regards to what are the issues that they need to be paying attention to. So I'm hoping that MPV, well, MPV has been speaking to some candidates actually, advising them on issues that they should be addressing and paying attention to that is for the common good of all. So Ani, I know there's so much more. I want to thank you so much for bringing us right into what is happening, what is developing. It's a real privilege. Happy holidays to you. See you at the celebration of life that you're going to postpone. It's going to be not in the early part of the year. It's going to be during Ramadan you were talking about. My guest was Ani Zonnefeld, founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values. Thanks for being back on Ask a Leader. All the best to you. Thank you. Season's greetings to everyone. Merry Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and a wonderful decade ahead of you. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Bye. Bye. My guest is artist-photographer Tom Kiefer. Tom is based in Ajo, Arizona. His photographic projects explore the infrastructure and cultural landscapes of the United States, blending fine art, and it is fine, and documentary modes. His previous project, Journey West Exhibit, chronicled the landscape, structures, and cultural markers connecting the Arizona cities of Phoenix, Tucson, and Ajo. Tom's work has been exhibited across the U.S., including the Fuller Craft Museum in Boston, the Saugatuck Center for the Arts in Saugatuck, Michigan, the North Light Gallery at Arizona State University in Phoenix, Arts Exchange in St. Petersburg, Florida, and Art Prize 2018 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the Nurem Contemporary Art Museum in Overland, Kansas. In 2015, Tom was included in Lens Culture's Top 50 Emerging Photographers and Photo Lucida's Top 50 Critical Mass Lists and has been featured in news publications nationally and internationally. We are going today to talk about his exhibition of photographs now on display at the Skirball Cultural Center now through March 8th. He comes to us today from Ajo, Arizona, although he's made many a trip to the Southland, and I hope we get him down in Orange County. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Tom Kiefer. Thank you, Claudia. It's lovely to, to be talking with you. So, well, congratulations on a most memorable and intentional exhibition. And I was primed, I'm going to say, because some of the listeners might recall, when two years ago, UCI displayed artifacts recovered by a person volunteering over 14 years, as it turns out, with a Tucson Samaritan group in the desert. 
And they're accompanied by narratives that elicit visitors to put themselves in the place of the refugee. I want to just call out kudos to Marquita Easter of the Los Angeles Times for putting your exhibit, Tom, in front for us to see. Well, let's start with your medium that you've been working with over your artistic career, the talent of which you brought to your janitorial job in Ajo, Arizona. Okay, let's talk about it. So you were a graphics artist, design person at the University of Washington, and you had a, a burgeoning career in photography that you continued to develop, correct? Tell well, us about that. Well, how it worked was I attended two years of the graphic design program at the University of Washington, and I left halfway through. Um, I just I wanted to get out there and just, like, change the world. You know, it, when you're 20 years old, it's just like you're filled with all this piss and vinegar, and you just want to get started. At least that was my case. And I ended up in Los Angeles in 1981, and for the next 10 years, I worked as a uh, graphic artist, graphic design. And what happened in 1991, I had a fire in the house that I was living Oof. in. And that set my life in a different direction. I, I ended up opening in an antique store. And my specialty, my niche, was cast iron beds which huh. I would travel back east into the upper Midwest to acquire the merchandise. And it was a very, very successful store, and it was also a hell of a lot of work. I mean, it was a very physically demanding job. And, well, it wasn't a job. It was an adventure, actually. And a calling. Yeah, yes. And it was kind of like, you know, I went from two-dimensional arts to three-dimensional you know, just these incredible, beloved treasures. And I had it for seven years, and I sold it. And the last couple of years, it was like starting to become a grind. And, you know, and I was returning, thinking, having thoughts about, uh, not that I ever had a photography career, but are the last two, the two major projects at the NMI graphic design uh, involve photography. And Rather than hiring a photographer, this is conceptual shots. Like one of the catalogs I was doing, I had to show an image that represented power. And what's more powerful than an overhead shot of the Hoover Dam, you know? Mm -hmm. So with my medium format camera, hired a pilot, and this is when you could fly over the dam, did some shots, and other wonderful kind of in the style of Walker Evans. Yes. Photographs that just represented or showed the American landscape. And that stayed with me. And I was returning back to that, you know, getting, you know, when I was like rethinking or just like, God, there's more to life than selling antique beds. And and there, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, Cher bought a bed. Uh, you know, she came into my store. Uh, Bette Midler was a customer. Diane Keaton, uh, she never bought anything, but she came in several times. And so it was just, uh, that in that regard, a rich, rich experience. And so I made the decision in 97 to sell the store and 
I sold it in 98. I helped the new owners try to impart my wisdom, my eye, my passion for, you know, these, these objects. So I sold the business to do my photography. And whatever time I had left, this is what I was going to do was, uh, again, following the step, footsteps of Walker Evans, Wright Morris, Minor White. I mean, they were my inspirations. And so in 98, I just started bicycling because I just gave up, you know, having a car in L.A. And wow. just loading up the tripod, the camera, and just pedaling around. And I lived in the Silver Lake Los Feliz area. In fact, I lived in the Silver Lake Los Feliz area for 18 and a half of my 20 years in Southern California. Wow. So I don't move around. I just kind of stay put. And in 2001, shortly after the terrorist attacks, I just, you know, the last few years in L.A. were, were hard. I was living in a place I was horrible and I wanted just to get out of there and I had heard or found out about this small little former copper mining town called Ajo that was 40 miles from the Mexico border and 100 miles from California and I ended up buying a house like December 16th 2001 I moved to Ajo not knowing a soul and embarked on this grand adventure and within about a year and a half you know, I needed to get a job you know have some money come in and the I saw in the paper this ad part-time janitor border patrol and the thing that really got my attention was ten dollars and 42 cents an hour which back in summer of 2003 was a lot of money in Ajo. And it was yeah. In Ajo, yes. And so I took the job. I, you know, I had applied, was immediately accepted, and there was about a five-week clearance. You know, making sure I wasn't some bad, bad person. And my start date was July 10th, 2003. And it was about my fourth year working there that I started noticing. Well, actually, I kind of noticed it before that, but the food that the migrants and asylum seekers were carrying with them in their backpacks, you know, these were people that were not presented themselves at a uh, port of entry at, at the border. These were people deep in the desert, you know, risking their life crossing the desert. And so the food that they c carried with them was just being thrown out. And... It just bothered me. I it just I absolutely yeah it understood just, yeah. And so one day I kind of mustered up the because actually when I first started working there, the agents themselves were actually collecting that same food and bringing it to our local food bank. Whenever there was a, a big enough pile of food, our local newspaper would come. Well, actually, the food would be taken to the food bank, and then the newspaper would show up and take a picture of, you know, a couple of the agents standing in front of this mountain of food, canned food, 
And so that about my second year working there, there was a change of leadership. And when he found out what was going on, the food collecting came to an immediate halt. And so for the next two years, I was witnessing this just horrible, I mean, you just don't throw out perfectly good food, you know? So one day I mustered up the courage, went to a supervisor and said, hey, can I bring this food to the food bank? And his exact words to me were, bless you. Ah. For the most part, the agents at that time did not like seeing the food thrown out any more than I did, but they had their orders. And (laughs) so the janitor was allowed to collect the food and bring it to the food bank. So that's when you could say El Sueño Americano began. So when I was starting to collect the food, it was to my utter shock uh, and horror, I would see a Bible, a rosary, a family photograph. And it's just like there was no way I could let items like that remain in the trash. And I had no idea what I was going to do with these these artifacts. I wouldn't call them artifacts when I think about them. Great. I I had no idea what I was going to do with these artifacts, but I just was not going to let them stay in the trash and go to the landfill. And so I, I never kept a journal or a diary, you know, whether it was six months, a year down the road. So I'm, you know, collecting these small objects. Uh, artifacts, the larger items, such as the blankets, the backpacks, the jeans, the jackets, the shoes. And the jugs. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, the water jugs kind of gave me space or cover, because those would be in the big bags, you know, put those up. I was allowed to recycle those. Oh, that's how you could do it. That's your MO. Oh, that's been a question of mine is how, it, so that's how it could be done. So you've, yeah. you've got those jugs over these larger items you're t- taking out of right. the, the detention center. The smaller items, of course, I would just put those in the car- boxes where I put the place the food. But the larger items, you know, the blankets, the shoes, and so forth, I would put those in the big bags where the jugs and the aluminum and the cardboard I was allowed to recycle. So... There was no knowledge of what I was doing. So after I had assembled the black combs and the brushes and placed them on a black background and shot that photograph, that was my moment, my aha moment, and realized that I'd found a way to photograph these artifacts in a way that showed my profound, deep regard and reverence for these these items, and I quickly assembled the pink combs and the brushes on it and put them on a pink background and blue combs and brushes uh, and put them on a blue. And so this would have been around springtime of 2013, and I worked for uh, another year. I handed in my resignation in July of... 2014, because I knew that it required spending all my time, energy, resources to start working on this project. 
and uh, I mean, throw myself into it fully. And uh, my last day was August 11th, 2014, mm-hmm. and I went public the following year and entered a couple competitions. And as you mentioned, I uh, was recognized and just have been working on it nonstop since then. For those of you, I've just got to let people know, my guest is artist-photographer Tom Kiefer. His work is right now on display at the Skirball Cultural Center now through March 8th. The title of the exhibit is El Sueño Americano, The American Dream. Well, you're talking about how you're arranging these compositions, and there, there's a creative process. There's a meditation, a contemplation of the origin of these personal effects, and that's, that's part of the dream, and the dream I heard from a previous interview on um, another public radio station is the dream, it set itself up when you saw the overalls that were going to be a realization of a dream in the promised land and tell us a briefly a little bit about that overall that was your next aha moment uh well this was recently i had you know there uh, hundreds of articles of clothing a sweatshirt that says michigan state right a hooded baby blue sweatshirt with a hood and practically in pristine condition but there is a set of overalls workers coveralls and, you know, there's still, you know, grime and dirt. And the person that wore this, yeah, compared to me, is a giant. I mean, this right. person, uh, this gentleman, he has to be at least six feet three inches, maybe six foot four. And I haven't photographed that yet. It's going to be quite a challenge photographing that. You know, You'll figure it out. Me. No doubt. I, I, I probably will. And, you know, I may create a backdrop that will look like the universe, you know, dark sky with, you know, little stars in the background. And we'll see. I mean, I won't know until I shoot, photograph it. And uh, it could be after I shoot it, it's like, "Eh, what was I thinking of? And maybe go with a, a colored background. I mean, you just don't, you don't know until you do it. So... So, yeah. well, that will be a remarkable addition, and we're, we're going to ask a little bit later about where this, you know, the next venue or the next desired venue is going to be. Another section, you have some CDs that you collected, and you understood, I guess, that it was from one particular young lady. You had that much of an ID of the original owner? Well, so one day I found this pouch, this pink, foamy pouch, and it was a person's CD collection of music was, oh my God, you know, Motown. Right. Just music that I grew up with. And she put her name on several of the CDs, Cynthia Gallegos Lucas. And so this, and I titled it Cynthia's Music Collection. And the Skirball has set it up in a way that there are six songs from the, you know, just from different CDs so you could kind of immerse yourself in Cynthia's it's Cynthia's playlist. I yeah, mean then there's yeah. some custom CDs that and custom mix CDs. I mean it's just it's remarkable. And um and I wanted to show 
I, w- I was only able to include 32 CDs uh, in the shot, and yeah. So I want to move on because there's there's um, and there are no spoiler alerts, folks, because of the the impact of actually seeing what I'm going to have Tom describe a little bit and doing that. There is your pasta layout with Emma Lazarus's quote welcoming refugees. It is genius. How how did that come to you? You know, I don't know. It just kind of happened. I mean, I had this. I wished I had the foresight to photograph more of the food that I collected. Uh, I you know, brought it to our local food bank, and just this wonderful person, Karen, who ran it uh, while I was donating the food, she recorded the weight of the food that I brought in. Oh. Uh, so apparently, uh, over the five or so years that I was allowed to collect the food and bring it in, over 60 tons of food was brought in. And, you know, there's this packet, lots of packets of, you know, dry soup, letter soup, alphabet soup. And one day, you know, just, oh, the Emma Lazarus poem, give us your tired, give us your poor. Wouldn't that be interesting, spelling that out with the letters from the alphabet soup? And, you know, it was a a little concerned that it was like kind of conceptual, you know, here I am, you know, making something out of the objects, you yes. know, it's like, was I crossing some kind of line here, but hardly, I, hardly, I didn't know. And, uh, you know, I would uh, show and talk to, you know, friends and fellow photographers and, you know, there are a, a couple people that thought it, it was, you know, like I was uh, crossing a line of some sort. But I proceeded on, and I did a, a, a version in Spanish, and and yes. then, hey, you know, let's do one in uh, French, because France gave us the Statue of Liberty. And, and I stopped there, you know, just English, Spanish, and German, you know, there is part of me that just doesn't know when to stop you know i could have easily done <laughs> german and who knows where it would have ended but then it would just would have almost become not a parody but just like oh god stop you know and yeah so that's how that came about and you know i lit it assembled it in a particular way and lit it uh to give it a three-dimensional effect and yeah it turned out to be certainly one of the key images in El Sueño Americano. And I've seen patrons just freeze, just stay put right there in front of that. Well, I want to, you're talking about interpreting your role and conceptualizing and presenting and all. There's, there's, there's also, I want to tell you, Tom, when I was there, interesting how patrons are interpreting some other pieces. And I'm thinking of the cell phones. They're all flip phones that you photographed and I don't know how many that were on there. And there was a gentleman that commented to me at the exhibit. He said, oh, uh, you know, they're, these are cheap, you know, and uh, this is all they could afford. And I, I happen to know from some Cameroon refugees that it's more expensive. Smartphones are stolen before you get to that far where these refugees came to Arizona. So there's there's that going on as well as... 
I learned also from that other interview I heard on public radio with you is that there is a a signal that with phones confiscated, people are not going to get notified about really important court dates and things like that. They're, they are cut off. Yes. So Dora had been, Dora had to leave Salvador in 1980 with her family members. You met her. I met her in Ajo for the first time in July uh, of July this year when the Skirball, uh, Laura, wanted to have an eight-minute documentary about Dora's story. And Seth Gadsden and Amada Turela, I'm, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, came and produced this incredible piece about Dora's story, which is on view not only in the gallery at the Skirball, but it's available online. And I, I, I can't recommend enough for people to watch it. It's remarkable. And it's uh, a lot of it takes place uh, in my studio and where Dora is seeing the artifacts. It's the first time she had been to my studio. And uh, it's just a remarkable document, testament to Dora's, travel here to the United States. It's not yes, for and it, her life. I'm sorry. And Tom, and it's not only Dora's story. It's, it speaks to women who have an assumption about how their excursion is going to la- how long it will last and what will the outcome be and it we we learn that it doesn't go the way they had uh, had it's, expected. Yes, and it's and, not an excursion by any means. Right. Correct. I I say that uh, I guess with more irony than I'm uh, yeah, I, under, I completely understand. Yep. So I'd like to know the Skirball Cultural Center, if, just briefly, how did you find each other? It's a, it's a good location, and we're hoping you're going to tell us a little bit about where other venues are for listeners to, to catch you if they're not able to get to the Skirball Cultural Center by March 8th. Laura Mart, the curator who put masterfully put <laughs> together, I mean, made sense of, you know, selected the right images for this presentation of El Sueño Americano, the American Dream, uh, she saw it on Instagram. Wow. And uh, shortly after the July 2018 story that appeared in the New York Times, I think she emailed me in early August in September her and Michelle Erton, the exhibitions director, manager at the Skirball Cultural Center, came to check me out to do a <laughs> studio visit. I, you know, it's like, who is this guy? And, you know, rolled the dice. And and I just happened to be presenting. I was in a group show at the Northlight Gallery that was opening, uh, and I was doing an artist talk, and they drove out from Los Angeles and came to the opening and stayed the night and then drove down to Ajo the next day and spent the entire day, you know, at the studio. They were rather mesmerized and I believe just more or less kind of offered, said, well, Tom, would you, would you be interested in an exhibit at the Skirball? And I said, well, yeah. And so 
uh, a year and a month later is when it opened. So, so you're continuing though to work on these companies. I mean, you talked about what you're going to do with the coveralls, but so are you doing this singularly? Do you have any help here, Tom, putting this together? Oh, I'm just a one-man show, and I, in my head, I'm actively seeking help, but you know, I haven't made any outward gestures yet. But I, I definitely will need, you know, some. I need help. And getting back to the skirball, this exhibit is traveling. It's going to be it will. touring indefinitely around the United States, and I'm not currently at liberty to say where it's going to be going next. That should be announced sometime mid-late January, but it's going to be taking a trip around uh, our United States. Well, what I would like to do is I, I can put your website on the podcast summary so people can follow where your exhibit is headed and perhaps okay. a link to the next venue. I can put that when I can update the podcast summary okay. later in January. That's Don't great. typically. So that would be wonderful. And the Skirball. Oh, I am on Instagram. Yes, exactly. Wanna... I can put that account up there okay. too. So the Skirball offers, it's quite a lovely brochure. It opens up to quite a sizable graphic of different things that we can do. I just want, as exactly. the last question, Tom, to find out from you, what takeaways do you offer? What you want people to do? It's clear what where our thinking is allowed to go, but what kinds of takeaways had you in mind for the well, ultimate? It, you know, it's whatever, you know, whether it's to donate, or spend time at a humanitarian aid organization, or get involved with your church or mosque or synagogue to get involved that way, to vote and just take whatever actions you feel compelled and, and can do. That's what I would ask of people. I mean, I'm just deeply moved that other people are moved by this, and for them, if they can take a, whatever that next step is, but to act upon would just, that's what I would ask of people. To take your meditative exercise into their own and follow up with an organizational collaboration. And or vote. And all oh, of the above. Always vote. Oh, all I, of the above. I'm spending all the time on voting from the end of January to our March 3rd primary, it's central to what I do on this community radio platform. Well, thank you. I'm so appreciative of the time you've given us and of your laboring mentally and physically in continuing to put a broader exhibition together. Tom Kiefer, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Claudia, thank you very much. My guest was photographer-artist Tom Kiefer, whose exhibit El Sueño Americano, The American Dream, is on display at the Skirball Cultural Center now through March 8th. Let your hearts fill with I want to wish everybody happy holidays, and next week I'm going to be bringing various women's voices to ring in the new year.
talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Let your hearts fill with cheer, joy, or joy to the world. The blessed Savior has come. Let there be peace on earth for everyone.